Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network at USA Today, this is the Trojans Wired Podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Zemick and Ian Hest. Welcome to the latest episode of Trojans Wired podcast, which is an in-house production of the website Trojans Wire, which is part of the College Wire Network. I'm Matt Zemick, along with producer and co-host Ian Hest. Gee, I wonder what might we might be talking about this week. Jordan Addison. Now, you know, we record these shows early in the week. So as you listen to this podcast later in the week, we'll probably have a, a lot more news to report. But, you know, right now, as we record this show, no official word yet on whether Jordan Addison, the elite wide receiver at the University of Pittsburgh, has entered the transfer portal. Now, a little bit of the inside baseball here. The deadline was May 1st, Sunday, but um, there is uh, like a, a two-day period in which uh, the schools uh, process portal requests. So conceivably, Addison could have filed his request very late Sunday night. But then there would be a two-day period before the school officially enters his name into the portal, and and then would come you know the announcement hitting the wires that he has entered the transfer portal. So that's just part of the details in terms of the machinery, the process behind the scenes. So you know neither Ian nor I nor anyone else knows on Monday afternoon uh, whether Addison has officially entered the portal. But the suspicion is the the, the sense is that he will enter the portal, it will be announced, and and that there's a good chance that he will transfer from Pittsburgh to USC. And Addison was a prime target for Kenny Pickett last year, very much helped Pittsburgh win the ACC championship, uh, defeating Wake Forest in the ACC title game, and then going to the Peach Bowl. Uh, so, you know, Pittsburgh and 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 Addison, you know, that that is a connection that was very productive you know, for player in school. And so it's understandable, perfectly understandable that Pitt coach Pat Narduzzi would be very upset, you know, to lose Addison in the portal. And it's also understandable for Narduzzi to look at USC's resources and USC's regained stature under Lincoln Riley and to just say, gosh, darn it. You know, the schools with the, with the muscle and the leverage and the prominence, um, they're going to have advantages and leverage in the, the world of uh, NIL and the transfer portal that we at Pittsburgh don't have. So like the frustration Narduzzi uh, is uh, feeling and is vocalizing, perfectly understandable, perfectly normal reaction. But this is where things get problematic, is that he blames Lincoln Riley uh, for this situation. Uh, he thinks Narduzzi thinks that Riley has engaged in tampering. Right, this is where we have to pump the brakes on all this. Now, look, we, we all know that college sports was not somehow 
this pure virgin green field of wholesomeness in 2015, uh, you know, before the transfer portal uh, liberalized rules came into effect, before NIL came into effect. I mean, you know, Bear Bryant and John Wooden, as great as they in fact were as head coaches in college sports in the 1960s, you know, they had their bag men. John, you know, John Wooden had Sam Gilbert. Doesn't mean John Wooden is less of a coach, but it was a situation in which, hey, players were given inducements. They were given incentives. It was just under the table back then. And now in the world of NIL and boosters and donors, donor, you know, donor collectives, which are kind of the new thing in terms of pooling the money to attract top players uh, with NIL deals. And, and many will say, uh, reasonably enough, it's not really even NIL that we're dealing with anymore. We've gone straight to pay for play. Um, and Ian, I know that, you know, the, you have a controversy down there at Miami with Isaiah Wong and the basketball team and the recruitment of transfer Nigel Pack from, from Kansas state. Like that happened one day before the Jordan Addison rumors exploded, uh, connecting Pitt and USC. So it's just a very new and different landscape in college sports. And rather than blame the coaches as Pat Narduzzi has done with Lincoln Riley, we should be blaming the NCAA. The NCAA has left the door open. It has allowed gray areas and loopholes to exist. The obvious one being that, well, coaches can't engage in tampering, but players can do uh, recruiting in the portal. Well, you know, we all know behind the scenes that the coach will give a player such as Caleb Williams, who apparently knows Jordan Addison. The coach will give a player a nudge, but like you can't really prove that, right? You can't ever really say, oh, well, the coach obviously told a player to do this. Well, we, we kind of know that logically, but you can't prove it. How are you going to yeah. prove something uh, like that, which goes on in back channels? So the fact that the NCAA allows players to recruit each other, that's just a big, wide, gaping loophole. And it hasn't been addressed. It hasn't been fixed. So, of course, this kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge stuff is going to happen. Lincoln Riley did not create this problem, everybody. This is, the, this is what the NCAA has done through its neglect, you know, not coming up with a serious, complete architecture of a plan to close all these loopholes and provide a system in which um, fewer of these kinds of interventions and, and soap operatic dramas uh, will occur. So, Ian, obviously a lot for you to, to consider. Uh, take this conversation wherever you'd like to. Yeah, I first off, I, I appreciate the Monty Python reference. I always appreciate a Monty Python reference. Um, but I, I wanted to jump in here because, you know, I, I do cover the ACC a lot. Um, so we do run in circles talking with people and, and talking with them. The, the point of contention on it is not that he's that he is heading to USC or or allegedly heading to USC, probably heading to USC. The point of contention is not the NIL deal that you and I have talked about at length over this offseason about how, you know, Los Angeles and, and the Southern California atmosphere lends itself to being a, a very big trough for USC to succeed in the, in the upcoming future. The point of contention is that it was done prior to him even entering the transfer portal. That's where I think Pat Narduzzi, it, it, I'm not going to speak for him, but I, I think that that's where the, the 
Pittsburgh people would say, wait a minute, like once, once you're open to leaving, then fair game. But before you've left, before you've made that declaration of entering the transfer portal, you can't come and talk to us. Like there, there, there still is a structure to this system. Whether or not we like that is, is up for debate. We can talk about that more. But there still is a structure to this system. And so I think where they're upset is more with the idea that this was being discussed prior to him even entering the transfer portal. Now, now that's a fair point. I would also simply say that, you know, if Caleb Williams talks to Jordan Addison on the phone, uh, just, just in, in microcosm, like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Like there's no, there's no rule preventing Caleb Williams from, no, from doing that. There's not, no, there's nothing. And that's been going on for years, right? Like when yes, you that's been college, with us for a long time. Yeah. When you talk college recruiting visits, you hung out with the guys, like you, you did all of that stuff already. So there's nothing new about that. It's just the idea of if it was an administrator or a staff member or a coach that was doing that. Okay. Well then all of a sudden, I have some questions. If it was just Caleb Williams talking to a buddy of his being like, Hey dude, why don't we just play together? That's totally fine for me, at least like that. That's where like, I sort and, of put that line. Yeah. In the sand. And so the, and so the thing is, Ian, is that, you know, we should just not, not allow players to recruit each other. If we're really, if we really are concerned, if the NCAA is really serious about preventing these kinds of, of interventions, um, that that that's something the NCA should do, like that 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 you know. It, it, in other words, if but a coach you're never does it, be able to stop that. These kid, these are kids. They're friends. Like you're never going to be able to stop. They're on TikTok do- talking to each other. <laughs> like you're never going to be able to stop that. All right. So you know. So like, what what would be a realistic solution to this? Because like, you can't really honestly police a coach, you know, t- nudging a player and saying, well, yeah, Hey, you know, you, Hey, you're, you're buddies with this guy. Why don't you give him a call? You know, wink, wink. See, that's where I disagree with you. That's where I disagree with you. I think you can police that. I think that a, pl- a coach turning to a player and saying, get me this guy. Th- there's the line. Like that crosses the line. If like, how do you just- ever be, how do you, okay. Like, I, like the merits of that, are fine, but how do you ever have a, a, a legitimate enforcement infrastructure in place? How do you begin to enforce that? Yeah, that that's a great point. I do, <laughs> of which I don't have an answer for. But <laughs> See, that, that, that's just the thing. There has to be a serious answer for that. Yeah, I I don't have an I don't have an answer for it. I but I do believe that that is the point at which it crosses the line. Whether or not I have a solution for that, I can't provide for you. But I, I think that there, there is you've drawn that line. Like that's where it is. I mean, we, you know, we do have like dead periods in recruiting. So, like to me, it would seem as though you know the transfer portal deadline, you know, for submitting the paperwork, uh, was was May first. So, you know, have like a a one week dead period. You know, at the end of that, uh, you know, leading up to the deadline, like no player 
at another school, you know, can can contact this player, you know, and, and of course, that's where, you know, we have social media. But are, yeah, are we going to uh, be checking Instagram comments? Like, what are we, like, what are we doing well, here? <laughs> so, so he, it, it does seem pretty crazy, doesn't it? Like herding cats, but like for a week, for a week, like you don't, you don't monitor communications for months on end, you monitor it for a week. So like that compliance or enforcement people could, you know, work themselves to the bone for a week, but they wouldn't always be doing it. I mean, that's just that's just kind of a, an initial uh, reflex answer there. I just don't know how you could possibly enforce that. I don't I, like there, there's that we've opened Pandora's box like we can't put yeah. we can't put it back in the box like and and so. I understand why Pittsburgh's mad. I understand why they're upset. At the same time, like, tough sledding, like, deal with it, you know? Like, this is the new normal, and we're consolidating college football into these powerhouses. And and we talked about this months ago, you and I, about the, the you know, availability and the visibility of Los Angeles and Hollywood and what that would mean for USC and UCLA and what they would be able to do. We talked about it with Miami and what they were going to be able to do. We talked about it with Texas and Oklahoma when they moved to the, the SEC. I, I, I mean, this is just what it is now. College football, we, we've joked about this before, but college football is cyclical. So it, will come back around, right? Like early 2000s, Alabama was pretty sad at a time. If you were a new college football fan and were told that there was a time not too long ago where Alabama was not good at football, you'd be shocked. So college football has innately been cyclical. So I, I don't doubt that it will return to that and it will come back around, right? I, I think that what this does is that it opens up the the market capitalism of college football that we didn't expect when we first made the NIL idea. We thought that it would be more equitable, that we would be opening up the market for everybody. But instead, what we got was basically like college football venture capitalism, where the rich are able to consolidate this power to use it to like to use it to buy up the best players and the 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 those that have not are not able to say hey we can offer you similar would you please consider our offer as well it's just consolidation of power i mean we saw this with the nba with the idea of building up super teams with the big threes of the world and and everything like that right like we're sort of seeing the same thing happen now in college football. And I think that that's what the pits of the world who right now are saying, wait a minute, we just got good. What are you doing to us? Are, are uh, rightfully upset about. And the USC's of the world who are like, we're just playing by the rules are benefiting from. No, no doubt. And, you know, like it's, it's, it's helpful to, to, you know, make note of the fact that, you know, Texas A&M has been outstanding in recruiting. And what does that tell us? It tells us that all that oil money from a very committed donor base is able to, 
you know, pour into NIL deals. I think that's uh, a great point. And, and the point that you made on Isaiah Wong is a great point too. So, but Texas A&M is a great point. I did, I didn't want to interrupt you, but that that's a really good point. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like John Wilner, our friend uh, who, you know, one of the best journalists covering the PAC 12, one of the things he said, and I think he's totally right on this is that a, a, a new, the new key to competing in college football is this, this is, it's a new term. It's going to be part of our lives now and the rest of the decade and going forward until we see major uh, legislative reform by the NCAA or, or perhaps even Congress is the donor collective. That is, that has become the new hot term uh, in the NIL transfer portal world that you, you don't, it's not just about having a, a donor or a booster. I know that, you know, John Ruiz at Miami, you know, the billionaire, you know, he's been, uh, heavily involved in the Nigel pack and uh, Isaiah Wong uh, situations, but it, it more at Texas A&M, that's definitely an example of a donor collective, a lot of well-heeled boosters coming together, you know, pooling the immense amount of cash and, and leverage they have and for, and mapping out a plan to not just get one recruit, but several recruits. I'm sure they obviously have a, a structure for you know how much to offer players at different positions or based on how valuable they are and i'm sure jimbo fisher uh, has plenty of conversations with them um so the the donor collective is is really a new thing one particular point to make about a donor collective in the pac-12 is that arizona state precisely because herm edwards is in such a tenuous position and ncaa penalties might be handed down later this year you know because the Boosters at Arizona State uh, here in Phoenix, where I am, you know, in Tempe, Tempe being the suburb of Phoenix, um, boosters are reluctant to commit their resources to at, at a time when the program and the head coach are on and the athletic directors to, as well. Ray Anderson are on such uh, shaky ground. So that's why you're seeing the hemorrhaging of Arizona State football with one recruit after another leaving because there's no donor collective in place to secure NIL deals. This is part of why USC landed Arizona State transfer linebacker Eric Gentry in the portal. Uh, so this this notion of the donor collective, it's a term that everyone has to get used to. It's the, it's the thing that every serious college football program, you know, that wants to be playing in January bowls, wants to be competing for conference championships, needs to have. And Arizona State has been one of the big losers here. And I don't know what the donor collective situation is at Pittsburgh, but you know you're you're obviously right that Pittsburgh's not going to be able to compete with USC in an arms race most of the time. So, I my question to you, Matt, is how much does like the Hughes and Kennedy families that are you know the two big boosters to USC, like how much importance is it that they work together, or are they competing for what they can offer? Uh, you know, I can't answer that question with certainty, but my informed, educated guess is that the more they work together, the better. You know, that that rather than being on islands, that if they're coming together, that that just creates more strength in terms of the 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 proposals, the offers, the deals that that uh, USC can put together, you know, for top players. And, you know, the fact that Lincoln Rock, boy, we, it's worth stepping back and, and realizing Ian, that. You know, having Lincoln Riley, uh, you know, for all the obvious reasons, was a tremendous hire by Mike Bone. But, man, it, it came just in time 
before this NIL wave, right? Like, you know, if, if it, if it had been, let's say Lincoln Riley had been hired uh, two years later in 2024. I mean, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the horse would have been already out of the barn uh, by, by that point. And USC would have, would, would have been way behind schedule in terms of being able to compete in this landscape. You know, let's just imagine USC being saddled with a mediocre coach for a couple more years. Uh, thank goodness Lincoln Riley is here, not just because he's a good coach, but because that, you know, he instantly in, increased and improved the credibility of the program where uh, any donor collective or any interested individual donors or boosters would say, hey, USC is serious about winning national championships again. I'm going to make an investment. It, it is so crucial that USC got Lincoln Riley just before this tidal wave of, uh, of, of hyper-capitalism in college football, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I, I guess I wonder if, if, if egos start to get involved, right? Because those are, those are, are two um, very uh, ostentatious individuals, uh, <laughs> if you will. Um, and, and very, very big pockets that have funded USC for, for years, right? Like, um, I wonder if they work together, if they could sort of make one plus one equals a hundred, um, you know, it, it, it bears to reason that that would be the case, but I wonder if you could almost implode amongst that egotism that, that, one person wants to be the guy that will bring in the major recruit. The other person wants to be the guy that brings in the major recruit. And you can have like these competing ideologies of how to fund this NIL landscape that we've created and, and not be really sure what th there, there is volatility in that market. Is there not? There certainly is. What, as, as I'm listening to you talking, and one thing that comes to mind is that, you know, at the very end of the Clay Helton uh, reign of error uh, in Los Angeles, um, fans and, and boosters within the USC family, they were becoming very consistent and disciplined in withholding donations from the athletic department. Like you saw very few fans attending games. Uh, you saw, you know, very few uh, of, of the wealthier uh, season ticket holders re-upping. You know, you saw decreases across the board in terms of donations, contributions to the athletic department. So and that certainly had its intended effect. Right. With with Bone not waiting until October or November, he fired Clay Helton in week two in mid-September. USC donor and booster pressure was very effective. It, it had its intended effect. It also had the benefit of giving Bone extra time to court and then land Lincoln Riley. So I think that that episode from last year gives us an indication, Ian. I mean, it doesn't guarantee it, but I think it gives us a very uh, good indication of what likely did occur, that USC donors and boosters are, in fact, on the same page. Like, I can't, I can't say that that's 100% like confirmed, but I, I think that a, a lot of what happened behind the scenes last year does point to I mean, it certainly points in the direction of USC donors and boosters, uh, the big, the big deep pockets, uh, having the same goals, having a shared philosophy, 
uh, wanting USC to be the very best and, and being united around that cause. So I don't think you're going to see uh, a fractured uh, donor base at the, at the highest tier of what certain individuals can give to USC. So, Matt, my last question to you uh, on this topic, at least, is like we, we've talked about the big money donors that, that go to the school, the big wigs, the, 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 the brass that, that everybody is. But like what, what about the everyday man? What about the email that you're getting? Everybody gets those emails asking for a small donation and things like that. Like, do they have a say anymore? Or is this just purely in the hands of if you have a big donor in a good market, you have a shot? Well, I think the big donor is a first point of leverage and, and the donor collectives, which you know, USC might not have a donor collective, you know, formally set up as we speak, but I think that there, you know, there's a large group of donors at USC who, again, as I mentioned earlier, withheld resources at the end of the Clay Helton era, and now they're all in. Uh, and you're seeing donations, you know, well, skyrocket. What about the little guy? Like, yeah, what, yeah. What, what, what so I'm prefacing, yeah, so I'm prefacing my point by saying that, you know, the, the, the big donors are the first point of leverage. So like, like that, that should, no one should be mistaken about that. But for the for the regular guy, you know, the fan who wants to get or who has been thinking about getting, you know, an upper deck or upper level seat, uh, you know, in the end zone or in the top uh, tier of seats at the Los Angeles Coliseum. I mean, like those fans were not buying tickets the last few years uh, uh, under Clay Helton. And when fans do that in large numbers, as we saw last year, uh, you know, attendance for that Stanford game couldn't have been much more than like 30,000. Uh, so you're talking about 48,000 empty seats uh, in the Coliseum on national television. When, when fans are able to stay away in droves, you know, when the ordinary guy not, not buying that cheaper ticket uh, in, you know, in the top 10 rows of the stadium, when that top, when that fan isn't buying that ticket in large numbers, yeah, that fan still has power. That fan still has a say uh, in what the program is doing because the optics are so bad. Uh, now, I mean, uh, I could ask you about how this works at Miami, where you know it, when the when the program's not doing well, you have oceans of empty seats at Hard Rock Stadium. So, you know, I'm I'm sure you could uh, speak about that from a Miami perspective. But basically, it comes down to the little guy has a say when the little guy is united. When you know when when fans throughout the the, the fan base are consistently staying away. You know, now sometimes you'll get in a situation where, you know, some fans think we should, hey, we should still support the program no matter what. And other fans will say, you know, we have to make the statement, staying away, not spending money. It's when there's a unity among the group of you know, the working class fans in a fan base, that's when, when it has power. But if it's divided, that obviously diminishes its power. Well, I was going to say, when you were, when you were saying that, I, I was going to say, because... At Miami, you know, obviously I'm here and went to the school. Um, the 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 idea is more of the show. It's more of the pomp and circumstance. Um, the 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 idea of uh, uh, status and and where you're sitting, not how you're cheering. Um, I I don't know if that's the same in the Coliseum. So um, I, I've only been to. I think three games at USC. So that, that that's my 
at, at USC, it's about winning. It's about winning championships. That's what it's about. So, but what I'm saying is like the fan wants to be seen. The fan want, doesn't need to be heard. The fan wants to be seen. And, and so once all, like the fan wants the access, they want the, the status, they want to brag about, you know, what they're doing. And then like the regular fan wants to really brag. And, and that's where you get like the swagger and all that stuff that we don't need to talk about. But at USC, I feel like there is a similar um, audience for that to possibly be so. And I wonder if in this big NIL free agenty sort of way, if all of a sudden USC turns more and leans more into that idea of making it more Hollywood, making it more of a show, making it more Lakery and, and doing all of those stuff. Yeah. So, you know, under in the Pete Carroll era, as you know, you know, Will Ferrell and Snoop Dogg and, and other celebrities would be regular, you know, sideline uh, guests, uh, you know, of, of Pete Carroll in the program. You know, they could always be readily seen on, on the sidelines you know, next to the USC players. And so, you know, in Los Angeles, well, you obviously want to do some stargazing. Uh, you you want to watch Pete Carroll and Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush and Lendale White and Snoop and, and Will Ferrell and, and the other uh, celebrities who, who would be there at USC games. So, I mean, there's, there's part of that, but the main thing is you want to, you want to be part of a winner and, and USC like, you know, like the Dodgers ha has a tradition of excellence, uh, well-established over de many decades uh, in, in Southern California. So, you know, it's, is it part of the show? Sure it is. But I think it's just, it's just about being great. I mean, that and, and at, at USC, the expectation is greatness. And, you know, like Miami, Miami is a little bit different from USC, or at least from my point of view, because Miami doesn't have Miami didn't have a decades long tradition of excellence before Howard Schnellenberger built the program and Jim, Jimmy Johnson elevated it. And Dennis Erickson, at least at the beginning of his tenure, sustained it. You know, that glory run from 1983 uh, through 1994, basically being in the national championship game almost every year. Um, you know, Miami didn't have much of a, a history of success in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s the way USC did. So there it's you know, this is Hollywood and there's, Obviously, it is part of being uh, in the show. It's being being with the glamorous people. That's certain, there's certainly a part of that. But USC has deep roots in Los Angeles. You know, going back to when Howard Jones, the, the patriarch of the program, got it all rolling in the 1920s. So there is kind of an old school aspect to USC, which you know, more nouveau riche powers, which, you know, Miami became in the 1980s and 1990s, it's not entirely the same dynamic. There's certainly some overlap, but it's not entirely the same. I think you know, fans just want USC to be great. And you've really seen that with the Clay Helton years, that fans were just so completely depressed. Like they didn't, they didn't want to bother to watch a terrible product. And I, and I love USC fans for that. You know, I'm not, I'm not a USC alumnus. Now, my father, my late father, did go to the school, 
in the 1960s. He was more of a baseball fan than a football fan, though. And he came, he came from Czechoslovakia. So, like, he wasn't a football diehard. He didn't make me like a USC Trojan football, um, fo- you know, fo- football fan. But, you know, I have followed the school and I live out in the West and I appreciate the USC heritage and, and, and tradition. But since I've you know been here at Trojans Wire for a little over two years, you know, about 27 months or so, I've really come to appreciate how USC fans aren't going to put up with BS. They're not going to put up with a bad product under Clay Helton. Like they wanted him out in 2019. They wanted him gone. And I think it was the correct instinct. And they won't just attend games if the product is terrible. And so is you know, obviously you're not going to have the glitz and the glamour and and the glow, you know, that that Los Angeles loves culturally, not just in sports, but in just about everything else. You're not going to have that glow when, when the product's bad. So but I think that there the, the desire for winning is more fundamental to a USC fans outlook than being part of a show. I mean, but my again, question, Matt, my question, Matt, is how much does money, big money donor matter to that compared to like the volume of the everyday fan. Yeah. So I think they're both important. I think that's the, 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 you know, one answer, but in the NIL, in the context of NIL and frankly, what's now become pay for play, you have to have the, the big hitter donors at the forefront. I mean, I just, there's no getting around it. So, I mean, they both matter, but the, the, the donor, the, the donor, you know, the political will and and desire to invest heavily, you have to have that if you're USC. You, you that that's an absolute necessity. All right, so that discussion about Jordan Addison, we will touch back on it next week when we obviously get lots more details that we can pass on to you. All the things that happen, we're definitely going to touch on that next week. Uh, but let's move on because we do have to discuss the NFL draft and. You know, again, USC fans, I, I, I mentioned this last week, uh, both on the podcast and in writing at Trojans Wire. The best thing about this NFL draft, well, first off, it's over. Secondly, it's the last Clay Helton draft. And obviously, you're going to have some Clay Helton leftovers or holdovers on the 2022 Trojans, but they get coached by Lincoln Riley, Alex Grinch, and the rest of the staff. So next year, you will see player development you will see players at the 2023 NFL draft who were developed at least for a year by Lincoln Riley, by Alex Grinch. It should dramatically change uh, the status of various USC players, but players who were coached by Clay Helton and Dante Williams and Todd Orlando this past season, you can see from 2022 NFL draft class that scouts and evaluators simply were not convinced USC with only three picks in the entire 262-pick NFL draft, only one pick after Drake Jackson going at 61. So you had zero picks in the third through seventh rounds, a testament to how little depth Clay Helton produced in the draft uh, over the course of his entire career. So now we don't have to deal with the Clay Helton narrative ever again in the NFL draft. It'll come up to a point Next year, you know, because USC's depth won't quite be fully built up, you know, you'll see Lincoln Riley build the depth in the program in future years. So, like, I guess that's that story's not completely dead and buried, but this was the last true 
uh, Clay Helton draft class that Lincoln Riley won't have his imprint on. So that's a that's a source of relief uh, for USC fans. And you know the the big positive story, obviously, and we said this on last week's show. We predicted that Drake London would go at number eight to the Atlanta Falcons. That's exactly what happened. Drake London is fully in position to be a WR one. You know the big dog in the room, starter, lead producer. Uh, he's probably going to be a fantasy football favorite, given how many passes he's likely to catch with the Falcons this year. So great situation for him. First receiver off the board, as we also predicted, he gets that high end money ha- has, you know, his dreams come true. We're extremely happy for him. Uh, Drake Jackson going at 61 to the 49ers, you know, he and Talanoa Hufanga are going to be teammates. Hufanga picked by the 49ers in the 2021 draft. So they can swap some stories they can share knowledge Hufanga can immediately educate Drake Jackson on how uh coach Kyle Shanahan operates with the 49ers so I think that's a that's a very good situation for Jackson even though you know he was projected to be a first rounder several months ago and didn't have the big 2021 season he was hoping for obviously the chaos of the USC program really dragged him down that's really you know, that's not primarily his fault. He, he got swallowed up by a bad situation. So it's great to see him, even though he fell on the draft board, he gets a really good team fit. Uh, Nick Bosa can teach him some of the finer points of pass rushing on the 49er roster. There's a lot to like about the place where Drake Jackson landed. And then after that, in uh, the other really big story, within the context of USC players not getting drafted, all is not lost for the, for those players. Isaiah Polamau, Isaac Taylor Stewart, Jalen McKenzie, Panay Mauga, uh, Eric Cromenhoek, the tight end, all of whom uh, signed uh, undrafted free agent deals. There are a lot of really good players. There are a lot of high-profile names who did not get drafted. Here's a partial list. Justin Ross, receiver of Clemson, didn't get drafted. C.J. Verdell, the running back for Oregon, who got injured midway through the 2021 season, he did not get drafted. Kennedy Brooks, Lincoln Riley's best running back at the University of Oklahoma last year, he did not get drafted. There are so many noticeable names who did not get drafted, and I think they're better NFL prospects than a lot of the sixth and seventh round picks that we saw in this draft. And so people might be wondering, well, Hey, why, uh, why are all these players who didn't get drafted? Why are they in, in position to, to still maybe have a better career than lots of sixth and seventh round picks? What's going on here? Well, with all the players who use their extra year of COVID-19 eligibility, you saw a much larger pool of players in this year's draft class compared to last year's draft class, when players who opted out of playing in 2020, uh, they needed the work. They needed to come back to college for another year, you know, especially in the Pac-12 where you play only six games in 2020. So players needed to come back in 2021 and get in some work. So you had a lot more entries into the draft this year. And that's why there are so many high-profile names uh, who didn't get drafted. So uh, all of the USC players who didn't get drafted because of Clay Helton, because uh, evaluators didn't like how they were coached this past season, well, they all get a chance to imp- to uh, prove themselves. And it's going to be interesting to see if any of them stick on NFL rosters, Ian Hest. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you in terms of the pool. I wanted to ask you about Drake London because I, I'm really interested in his situation. It seems like he's built for a really good fit in a very weird way. The fact that like they they have constantly had these big wide receivers that have not, I guess become all pro players, but they have been, you know, fantasy all-stars, if you will. Um, and and he sort of kind of fits the mold, but now with Marcus Mariota, if, if he's going to be able to do that, you, you had a great article on Trojans Wire earlier this week uh, about him, or earlier last week, um, that, that spoke about that. And just where where he sort of... Where his projection might be would be my question to you. If he could live up to the Roddy Whites, to the Calvin, like like to to all of these, or or are my expectations too high? Your expectations aren't too high. I mean, I you know he was the best receiver in college football last year before he got hurt, and I know that Jamison Williams of, of Alabama is great. Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson of Ohio State are also great, but I think London was better than all of them. I mean, he, you know, London was made the 11 catch, 140 yard game seem routine, and of course, it's anything but. But like he just did that week after week after week with defenses knowing that he was the foremost point of attack for USC. He was most of the offense, and he just got open anyway. And he, you know, he said after his pro day. Uh, a few weeks ago, that it's not about pure speed. You know, and he is not the fastest guy in the room, but speed is not the number one thing. It's how precisely you run your routes. It's your footwork. It's how well you stop and start and create change of direction and that throws cornerbacks off balance. Yeah. And he he masters that. The thing he has that me, down pole. The thing with me that he has is the like the 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 elevation is just incredible. Elevation, also strength. Like he's, he, you are not going to beat him out for a 50 50 ball, period. He has the body, he has the reach, he has the hops, and he has the instincts to make all those things uh, as fully beneficial as possible. So, do, do you view, like, I mean, as we, as we transition, I guess, from the Addison discussion back into it, like, is that the, when we talk about like, the Mike Williams of the world and things like that. Like, do you view the, this iteration of USC wide receiver as a thing? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that that's like the, the prototype USC receiver. I mean, Mike Williams certainly was, but like Kerry Colbert, another you know great receiver from the Pete Carroll era, he, he wasn't in the same vein or mold as Mike Williams. He was kind of the faster guy who could, you know, with, with his speed, uh, get open and carve out space. Also, Steve Smith, you know, uh, the, the other uh, great receiver from that time. You know, so, so like Dwayne, Dwayne Jarrett and Mike Williams, they they were like the big boy uh, receivers who were tall and would win 50-50 uh, battles. Drake London's a little more like that. But USC has had receivers, quality receivers come uh, in different shapes and sizes. I just want to hit on one more thing about Drake London is that, you know, Marcus Mariota, he's been the backup to Derek Carr. For a few years, um, you know, he fell out of favor in Tennessee. And before when Ryan Tannehill came in there, Marcus Mariota has a lot to prove this year. Like this, this year, 
is going to tell us, you know, if Mar Marcus Mariota can stick as a QB one in the NFL, or, or if he's going to slide back to a backup. And it's notable that the Falcons took Cincinnati quarterback or Cincinnati Bearcat quarterback. I should clarify. No, no, no one's threatening Joe Burrow, of course, with the Bengals. But Atlanta drafted uh, Desmond Ritter, the, the Cincinnati Bearcat quarterback, at number seventy-four in the third round. So that you know, that's kind of a a pick to to signal to Marcus Mariota, hey, you're you're our starter, but you know, hey, we, we uh if you slip up, like we have a, a plan B. So that's kind of like an incentive to Mariota to make sure that he performs his very best. So you're going to get a very motivated quarterback throwing to Drake London this year. So that's that's a reason to think that uh, Drake London can put up really good numbers in 2022. But if Mariota doesn't work out. Then you have Ritter as the backup plan. You also have 2023 draft class and maybe at uh, the Falcons, you know, have, have a different plan in terms of their QB one next year. So like the bottom line Ian, is that Drake London is not stuck. He's not stuck in a bad situation that shows no signs of improving. If Mar Mariota could have a good year. That would be the best case scenario, but the Falcons would then have a plan B if this year doesn't work out. But, you know, a comparison, like, let's say you go to, you know, and this is, this is a prominent example for me of a, of a notable NFL prospect uh, who didn't have a good fit, Sam Howell with the Washington commanders. Yes. Now, some will say, yes. some will say, Hey, well, Carson Wentz is there. So Wentz might slip up and Howell might become QB one. All right. You know, fair enough. But like, if you're a quarterback and, and you go to the NFL, you don't want to be coached by Ron Rivera, who mismanaged Cam Newton with the Carolina Panthers. You know, he got 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 a great uh, Super Bowl season out of him, but you know, treat at at the expense of treating him like a linebacker and subjecting him to a lot of hits, which shortened his career. You know, banged up his shoulder, reduced his shelf life. Uh, and and the other thing about going to Washington for Sam Howell, you know, the North Carolina quarterback, is. You have Micah Parsons of the Dallas Cowboys, and you now have Kayvon Thibodeau of the New York Giants in that division. Like, that is just a bad place for a quarterback to land. So, you know, in terms of what's a good fit, in terms of what's a bad fit, I think we can all identify, you know, a, a situation in which you are not set up for long-term success. Drake London is in a situation where I think he, you know, can definitely – uh, be successful on a continuous basis. And, and, and crucially, Ian, if things don't work out with Mariota this year, again, the Falcons can reset with a new plan, a new outlook next year. It's not a case where like the next three years are likely to be uh, miserable for Drake London. I mean, in terms of winning games, all right, that's kind of a separate conversation. But I think Drake London is in position to be a richly prolific uh, NFL receiver the next few years, which of course, sets him up for major money in his second contract. So like in just in terms of having a prosperous NFL career, Drake London landed in a good place. I'll I'll leave it anonymously and I'll leave out the the player in the team, but one of my good friends is an undrafted quarterback who has, you know, moved around a lot to to say the least. Um but it, it, he talks about that that point all the time that we as just like viewers of this do not understand how important a the partnership is but b 
how how important the the culture of of what you're asked to do is and and you can go through all the talents in the world and if you don't have those two points you're not going to get to see which is the the you know throw at the end of the game that you're able to have uh that that will win the that will win the game you won't have your Tom Brady's or your Aaron Rodgers or your Brett Favre's or your Peyton Manning's or any of that if you don't have those first two points so I, I think that that what you just said is in is a great point in 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 showing how you need to have a, a stability, an understanding and, and a relatability to what your quarterback, coach, wide receiver, top to bottom, every step of the way, what that needs to be in line with in order to make things work. Absolutely. And just one final point as we close the show, Ian, I'm not saying that getting drafted by the Washington Commanders and Ron Rivera is bad. I'm saying that being an offensive player who gets drafted by the Washington Commanders and Ron Rivera is bad because being a defensive player, being a defensive (laughs) player who gets drafted by Ron Rivera, like that's the jackpot. You get to be Chase Young. You get to be developed, you know, by a guy who knows defense inside and out. So when I talk about fits, I'm very specifically focusing on, you know, the, the position you play, like being a being a being an offensive player for Kyle Shanahan. Like that's a dream come true. Being a defensive player for Ron Rivera. That's a dream come true. But being an offensive player for Ron Rivera, especially at the skill positions, that's a nightmare. And especially in the NFC East with all the great young defensive players. So it's really more about. Offense versus defense. It's not so much, you know, it can be about the organization. And of course, Washington is a Dan Snyder organization still. He should have been kicked out of the league. That's obviously a separate conversation for another day. But that's just the finer point that I'm not saying being with Ron Rivera is bad. I'm saying being an offensive player with Ron Rivera is bad. And so if you you look at Atlanta, Arthur Smith, he's an offense first coach. So that that enhances the point that Drake London is in a good place um, if he had gone to, let's, you know, uh, uh, let's say the Lions, you know, where Dan Campbell is, uh, you know, focused on on toughness and defense and running the ball, um, you know, with Jared Goff as a quarterback, you know, that would not have been a good fit. Just to, just to just to create an example uh, of what would, what a bad fit would have been. But I think Drake London, the more you look at the various details of his situation, he's in position to have a very lucrative, successful uh, career. So. Ian, a great conversation on a number of fronts this week. So next week, we will provide you know an obvious an update. We'll know a lot of the main stories related to Jordan Addison and the Pittsburgh USC transfer portal drama. We'll be able to bring that to you uh, as we head in the off season. So that like that's going to be our focus uh, next week. Uh, so Ian, uh, hey, I know that you're down in uh, in Miami. So you have Heat games, you have Panthers games, you also cover the Inter-Miami uh, football club down there. A very busy week for you. I wish you all the best in your coverage this week. Thank you, man. Yeah, it's a it's a fun time. You have the top teams in, in all the world, it seems like, right now, except for Inter-Miami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and speaking of top teams, that's exactly what USC hopes to become. Exactly. Exactly. So, for Ian Hest, this is Matt Zemek. Thank you for listening. 
to our show this week. You can find us on Google, Spotify, Apple, and wherever else you listen to our podcasts. We will see you next week on the next episode of Trojans Wired. 